UX Podcast Episode 183. You're listening to UX Podcast coming to you from Stockholm, Sweden. We are your hosts, James Roy Lawson and Pat Axbomer. With listeners in 174 countries, from the Czech Republic to Finland. And with us today, we have Kevin Hoffman. He's the Vice President for Design at Capital One. He's also a digital design strategist and meeting facilitator. And he recently released his Rosenfeld media book, Meeting Design. We've been waiting for a long time to talk to Kevin about his book. Mm. I I originally attended his workshop around meeting design way back in um, 2013 at UXLX, which I summarized my thoughts about that in episode 43, which is which is really, really, really long time ago in the archives. Yeah, it is. Um, and we also talked to Russ Unger um, back in episode 73. That episode was about designing workshops, but Russ had a lot of good things to say about Kevin in that episode and told us we need to talk to Kevin about meeting design because he was just talking about workshop design. So now, at last, we're doing it. And in this chat with Kevin, we talk about how did Kevin get into meetings? What are the roles in a meeting? Dealing with combining roles, the benefits of facilitation, approaching meetings in an inclusive way, coping with being a participant of a meeting, and, of course, designing meetings themselves. And remember, it's that time of the year when it's listener survey time. So visit uxpodcast.com slash survey. I was reading through the recommendations and reviews on Amazon, and I saw some reviews saying that your book was life-changing. And at first I thought, well, that's not something maybe you'd expect from a book about meetings. Uh, But reading through a lot of the other uh, recommendations and and reviews as well, you realize that sort of we spend so much time in meetings. People have been waiting for this book for so long because there is a huge problem and there is something that needs to be solved, but nobody's done it really yet. But you've been doing workshops uh, on the subject for so many years now. Tell us how it started. Thinking about this as a topic started in maybe about a little less than 10 years ago. I was working at an agency uh, called Happy Cog for uh, Jeffrey Zeldman and my boss at the time, Greg Hoy, um, asked me to fix a meeting that we had, a style of meeting that wasn't going well. I started reading and looking for different books on and articles and whatever I could find on the topic of facilitation as a design exercise. In other words, um, we're thinking about an experience that has a beginning and a middle and an end, and what science or what observable data was out there on where there were good successes and where there weren't. And I found this book called How to Make Meetings Work. Uh, It's a book from, I want to say the first edition is in the mid-1970s. Oh wow! And in that yeah, and in that book, there was this model. They call it the interaction model, and they actually call it the new interaction model. But given that it was new in 1976, it's probably not a new interaction model anymore. And the the model is a basic structure to impose upon a group discussion. From there, I went on this journey of 
joining a cult of <laughs> people who geek out about facilitation as an area of growth, as an area where you can grow your own skills, but also um, both in the in the subsequent boom, and when I say subsequent, I mean probably like, let's say 90s, uh, maybe late, line, late 90s is when it really started to pick up, although there's a book from the 80s on the topic of visual facilitation and sketch facilitation, and then if you look at the 2000s, there's you know, people like Dan Rome and Mike Rohde who've written about sketchnoting and visualization. Mm -hmm. And then there's a fundamental change at some point, probably before Skype and before Google Hangouts, but at some point where we began for whatever business benefit or, or, or efficiency benefit, we began having conversations like this, where you're in Sweden, it's 1 o'clock, I'm here at 7 a.m. We realized that geography wasn't a factor. So if you look at all of that, for me, in terms of your original question, which was how I got started, I think I found one thing about what I didn't like about the meetings I was experiencing, and I actually decided to learn more. It's very common to look at the system that is around us, like meetings or the way our organization is structured or um, the, the weather or whatever, and say, this system is creating my circumstance. So I am a, I am a victim of this. And meetings is a really easy one. I am I, a victim of meetings. I'm a victim of so many meetings. Uh, I am powerless in meetings is another one. Like I'm not the one who called the meeting or I'm not in charge in, in, in this team. So I can't make change. And I think that is a choice. I don't know that everybody sees it as a choice. I don't know that everybody even thinks about it as a choice. But I believe it's a choice uh, because you are a part of that system. You are an attendee of the meeting. You are a part of your organization. And how you choose to be present in that time is up to you. So you're, you're playing along with an established game. You're playing, you're playing along with the rules of an established game rather than challenging them. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think... Like anyone who wants to do a thing better, my first step was really kind of understanding the game. I think that one of the main reasons I wrote the book is that when I graduated from, from uh, graduate school and I started working, nobody said this was a thing in any class I ever took in university. Um, and nobody in my other professional you know, preparation never said, this is something that you're, is going to be a part of your life. Um, I was maybe a part of you know different groups uh, that had meetings growing up, but I never, I never thought about it as a part of my career. And um, I really wish somebody had done that for me. Mm -hmm. I really wish that somebody had said, "Hey, you're going to be in a lot of these things. You're going to learn a way of doing them based on wherever you start working, and you're going to think that's right. That's going to become ritual, and it's important to stay." intentional about your relationship to that ritual and I, I know you use the analogy of uh, citizens uh, in, in meetings then you just look at each, each participant as, as a citizen but then from the viewpoint that as a citizen you also have a responsibility so you need to be sure that you know what you're doing in the meeting and as you were saying actually take responsibility for what your purpose is so, as a participant so, so what you're asking there Pedro, is is what what are the types of citizen mm. in a meeting what are the roles mm. in 
a meeting. Yeah, I, mean, I think there's roles, um, and the you know going back to the book I mentioned earlier, the the new interaction method is there are these roles that we fill in meetings, and if the roles are filled are with a certain framework in mind, the meeting goes better, and if it isn't filled that way, it goes worse. The roles that they outline are facilitator. Um, who's somebody who's neutral, who doesn't have a bias, and doesn't have a personal investment in the the outcome of the conversation. Um, a leader, who is somebody who is in a position to say, this outcome has been achieved or not, um, and maybe define the outcome. What they call a recorder, but somebody who is responsible for capture. And a key point in that book is that when they say capture, they don't mean, I think, what what laptops or computers have enabled us to do, which is personal capture. So per the idea of being in a meeting and personally capturing what's happening in front of me to then take it and make sure I cover my ass and do what I you know, committed to do or somebody committed me to doing. In a meeting context, if you're thinking about a group of people, capture is actually... Uh, essentially, it's the act of creating uh, read-only memory for a group of people. So when you see someone visually facilitating a meeting, like sketching as people talk, that's a method of meeting capture because people can use that as a record and have that kind of like offloading memory so that if they want to say, remember, oh, what did I say 10, 15 minutes ago? They have that, and that serves as a function of the conversation. Um, are you guys familiar with the, the peak recency bias? To think about what mattered, there's two things we're going to bias towards. We're going to bias towards the most recent thing, and we're going to bias towards the peak thing. So if I'm in a meeting and there isn't some sort of person tasked with making meaning that we can all look at and, and say, yes, that's what I agree with, then what I'm going to remember is I'm going to remember the thing that either I was the most excited or angry about, which is my peak, and I'm going to remember the thing that happened a few minutes ago, uh, which is the recent thing. And if you imagine a system where 5, 7, 20, 60 people are all having their own peaks and recencies, you know, nobody's, nobody's going to have the same reality. We don't have the same realities anyway, um, but it's going to be a lot worse. And then the last role is the role of a meeting attendee, and that's really the citizen role. And the question is, you know, as an attendee of a meeting, how are you ensuring that the facilitation is in service of the conversation? How are you ensuring that the capture actually represents your reality? And how are you ensuring that um, you're, you're contributing to what the defined outcome has been from leadership? And, and if you're not thinking about those things while you're in the meeting, then you're not really there, you know? And unfortunately, I think, if you're careless about how you design a meeting experience, whether it's a stand-up meeting or, or a, a multi-day workshop, you create it, it creates a lot of opportunity for people to, to not be citizens and to just not be present. Yeah, because I guess in the worst meetings is when all these roles get kind of blended and merged together, that you, you're the one who's designed the... the you've called the meeting, you've, de you've decided the agenda, you've turned yeah. it to the meeting and you get, you've effectively have to facilitate it and take notes and be a citizen in it all at the same time. I think that's a designer dilemma too because I think... I, I would say most designers are used to thinking about the relationship between the choices they make and the outcomes that they get. 
So they're thinking about the choices they make in that meeting, the things that people are saying and how it affects the conversation. They're also still thinking about the outcome. Because of that reason, and because they may believe that a particular outcome is a good one or not, um, it makes them not ideal to facilitate uh, a meeting that they have a belief, a strong belief about. But if, they're, if they naturally kind of lean into facilitating when there's when there's not a system in place, if they naturally kind of fill that role, they kind of become perceived as facilitators. And I think certainly in my organization at Capital One, uh, there there is a, a slow, slowly growing demand for, hey, we need a facilitator for this meeting or we need a particular kind of meeting. Um, and that person usually comes out of design. And I think that's good. And that's why we have a, a facilitation team uh, at our in, in our organization. But to your point, this idea that we find ourselves across multiple roles, I think that one of the questions I get the most often is, when can you combine roles and how can you combine roles? First, I think it's a question of scale. So I think if you think about a meeting where three people are critiquing some work together on a laptop, or a, or a pop-up meeting where you're in the hallway and you realize there's a thing that needs to be resolved, it's not a bad thing to be intentional in combining certain roles, like I'm going to facilitate and capture at the same time. But facilitating and capturing as a single person's role or combination for a group of three people and for a group of five people and a group of seven people, it becomes increasingly complex. It's just a question of being honest about your scale and your capacity and, and how important the the conversation is because is that if a conversation matters then you probably want to take the time to place a layer of safety and structure against that conversation you may not use it it may not happen the way you intended designing meetings is not about necessarily predicting the way they will go it's about kind of the difference between somebody who uh, is really good at improvising and music uh, they're falling back on years and years of practiced concepts and things that they've just learned that work, um, but they're able to pull what they need in the moment. It's not just not having a plan or even not having just you know having a conversation. It's understanding the dynamics of a conversation and, and making sure that you have a framework to build on, but that you're not inflexible and it's not so brittle that if the conversation goes in a different direction, you immediately perceive it as a failure and then you check out and, and aren't a citizen anymore. One, one aspect of, in the book that I, I enjoyed was the, um, uh, when you're talking about the, um, the use of memory and, and switching between yeah. the various states of the long term, the intermediate and working and so on, mm-hmm. um, which I think we, that's something definitely I, I don't always think about um, in meetings. I, I just attended a workshop and there was some cognitive uh, science in the workshop, brain science. And the, the facilitator did a great thing that I'm going to do now, which is to say, uh, in my book, there is stuff about the brain. What I did was I tried to find studies, interesting things about the brain that have been observed in reality, and there's data behind it. But most cognitive science is disprovable because what we don't know about the brain uh, vastly outnumbers, outmeasures what we do know. Mm. That being said, my hope is that in that chapter and in exploring those concepts, 
for me, my goal was to say, how do I experience these concepts in the context of meetings and how does that help me or hinder me from getting the outcomes that I want in those meetings? For people who read my book, that part of the book, what I hope they take from it is not, this is how the brain works, because I don't know how the brain works and anybody who says is lying. What I hope they take from it is, if this is how the brain works, and maybe it does and maybe it doesn't, what could I try in the culture that I'm in to see if I can essentially approach a meeting in an inclusive way, which is to say to accommodate the diversity of possibilities in our brains and the fact that our, my brain and James' brain and Paris' brain are completely different. Um, and, and how do we design a system, a conversation that is accommodating of that? I actually, I actually did a training day um, this week, and I'd Me read, too. and I'd read, <laughs> I'd read um, that chapter of the book um, um, at the weekend, and I actually moved the position of one of my exercises um, after lunch yeah. to to make a more a kind of a better kind of twenty minute chunk mm. straight after lunch for for kind of yeah. lecturing before I did the exercise, reflecting on the fact that I didn't want to have you know, over half an hour of just me talking before I did the, yeah. the exercise. Yeah, I love that. And I, I'm that, that kind of story is like, that makes me very happy to hear because I think that, I just think that I spent so much time in my life uh, in single modes of experience and didn't really push back on the, the idea that the content that uh, that was intended to get to me, uh, you know, in, in that experience wasn't getting to me because of the design of the experience. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, it seems really obvious to any designer or somebody related to design, but um, it, it definitely, I, I, I just think it's amazing. And, and every time I think about this, it still is amazing to me that our technology changes so fast. And what we consider the norm in technology changes you know relatively quickly but yet this mode of interaction that we've had longer than recorded history literally longer than recorded history is one of the least intentional parts of our lives um, certainly in business uh, and you know in our careers we we have very minimal intention in thinking about meetings. Mm -hmm. And I'm not, I'm not talking about like coming up with an agenda. I think agenda design and being, in, being intentional about an agenda is a good thing or a bad thing. But I, I mean the full range of, of the life cycle of the experience, the preparation, being present during it, thinking about you know, if it was successful afterwards. Like the software we have is not designed for that purpose. Mm. It's designed to make sure that you you're there, <laughs> and it's designed to default to an hour or a half an hour, it's, mm. or you know measures of that. It's it's not designed. It's not designed to help you make sure that the time was well spent. It's not designed to prepare you for the time. I think there are some companies doing that. Um, Lucid Meetings is one that comes to mind, where their meeting software is more around. The relationship between the content of meetings and the mission or success of your organization but 
you know, Google Calendar, I mean, any calendaring software is not designed to help you have better meetings. It's designed to make sure that you don't miss meetings. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I completely agree with this. It's, it's, um, it's, it's really quite incredible when you think of how, how much of a, a failure it is with meetings when you consider like um, the way that um, industrial processes have been um, studied, optimized, and in time and motion we've talked about before, that we, we've, we've realized that you know, creating a thing has to be streamlined and thought about and considered, whereas we're mm -hmm. still wasting so much opportunity for, for doing meetings better. Yeah, and, uh, and there's a flip side to that. The flip side becomes, okay, if we're more intentional and we apply ritual in a very defined way, and, I, I, and I'm alluding to Agile. So we think about Agile process and different flavors of Agile. One of the great things about, um, you know, I think, I think one of the reasons why Agile software development as a methodology has expanded and exploded well beyond the the practice of software development so is there agile ux is there lean ux is there um you know can we do uh, can we be an agile team if we're not even a software team and all of those things are happening i think one of the subconscious or maybe conscious reasons that that, that is happening is that there is the perception of intent with time with agile processes we do this at this time we only talk about this we do it at this cadence etc. In, in my opinion, if you overcorrect into ritual, so w I think one of the problems that led to meetings consuming a lot of our lives in, in, a, in, in a low or no intent way is that we assumed ritual. So right now, ad, Agile is in this, I think, early middle space where the ritual is still relatively tied to intent. But more often than not, I... I'm a part of either agile processes or um, I observe agile teams that aren't succeeding despite sticking to a very specific ritual of agile method, um, you know, and what <laughs> one of the things that's funny to me is like sometimes the way they correct is they're like, oh, there's a new ritual out there that we can add to the ritual. And to me, that's like not the correction. But the thing that I hopefully conveyed successfully in the book is that it's great to bring rituals into your organization if the ritual has an element that you can observe tying to a result. And that is the step, that is the intention in designing meetings that I talk about in chapter one that is the first thing you have to do is ask yourself, you know, what is the larger outcome that this meeting is intended to serve? And then how are things we're doing in the meeting connected to that outcome? One thing I want to touch upon briefly uh, before we finish off is this concept of uh, what is happening to meetings today. So I've been working in an organization for years now in the public sector, and I've watched across the years how people have sort of given up. Meetings are getting worse and worse in the sense that people realize that they're called to meetings and mm -hmm. it's even allowed, well, well, people don't think twice about it. They, they answer emails in meetings and respond to texts in meetings because we now have mobile phones. And, and people do it all the time. People's expectancy of what a meeting is is just getting further and further away from what a good meeting should be. So how, how, what's the, what are the steps to, to turn that around? I love mm -hmm. that you believe that there may be those steps. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what they are. You're not crushed enough yet, Pat. That's the thing. Yeah, 
just in response to thinking about your question, there are two forces, there are two opposing forces to think about. One is the quality of the meeting itself, and the other is the culture. If there is the perception of low quality or, or low value, the behavior that you're describing, which is common and happens in my organization, happens in every organization, is such that um, you know it, it will slowly take root. Mm. And the behavior I'm referring to is kind of the example you said of like, somebody's in a meeting, but they're not really there. I'm on my phone, I'm keeping my laptop open, I'm responding to emails, whatever. If that's an observable data point, and it's an easy thing to do, like you can just, you have a notebook, you can just kind of make a, make a list of, of 10 meetings or 100 meetings or however many you want, and just kind of put a little check mark in that notebook and say, how many times is this actually happening? So the first thing is making sure that you can observe the behavior in a way that verifies your belief. Because one thing I've learned about myself is that there are things that drive me crazy that start to feel like reality, but it may be my reaction to that thing that is driving that more than the actual reality. So once you're sure it's a thing, that it's an observable thing, and, and that the meeting quality isn't such that the behavior is actually de is, is prevented, or people are, are, more, are less likely to do it, then there's the question of the culture. Changing cultures is really hard. Uh, Karen McGrain uh, once said in a talk at a conference that I was running, um, uh, she did a keynote, and she, she said that everybody in the design business is really in the change management business. And change management is one of the hardest things to be successful at because you're essentially trying to break systems that exist outside of individuals. Um, you know, the way our behaviors reinforce each other, the way that um, the leadership uh, rewards or, or punishes different behaviors, um, the, the, the belief that, the, that you're in a group of people that behave a particular way when the evidence shows otherwise, all of those and many, many more things kind of make up culture. What I talk about in Chapter 6 is the idea that meetings are a great way to capture, like I said a second ago, whether or not the culture is what you believe it is, and to point out when the organization says, this is the kind of culture we are, we're a collaborative culture, you have a way of saying, well, in meetings, our experience based on this data is that our culture is not collaborative, that our culture is ritualistic, or our culture is... Um, our culture is uh, is um, not intentional. Our culture is kind of like a, a church, or you know, it's a, a very ritualistic. And then to say, what are the smallest, you know, the minimum viable behaviors changes we could put in place, and then measure that change. And I'll give you an example. I I run and attend and manage people who do workshops constantly. It's a big part of my job. Uh, and before I was at Capital One, you know, I was doing workshops, you know, as a major part of my income. I attended a workshop, uh, I, I'm attending a workshop now uh, every quarter. Uh, that's a workshop about, you know, how, how I can improve as a leader and as a manager of people. And they do this simple thing in the workshop that 
is so incredibly obvious, but I don't do it as much as I should, which is that every time you come back from a break or every time someone starts speaking or, or anything, they remind you to turn off your phones. There's a basket on every table and everyone has to put their basket in the phone. Or sorry, their phone's in the basket. Uh, it'd be weird if they put their basket in the phone. <laughs> <laughs> but there's this, there's this really interesting design choice there because they've, they've created two dynamics that reinforce that behavior and actually worked really well as I observed it. One, they, they created a repeated uh, cycle of it. So it's not just they say it in the morning and the baskets are there all day. But every time you break and come back and break and come back, there's this ritual to, oh, I'm going to be reminded to do this. But at each table of seven people, and these are, this was a workshop with about 100 people, at each table, there are seven people. And I guarantee once one person reaches in their pocket and puts the phone in that little basket, somebody else does it. And so there's a social proof that's happening mm -hmm. in that interaction at the same time as the actual like intention to to uh, create the the encouragement for people to do that, and thinking about that that basket, it becomes a symbol of that behavior, and not having a physical representation of the change in the meeting itself is kind of a thing. So one thing I've seen in in, in certain companies is they create little kind of little signs that sit on the table let's say rules of a meeting, you know, or they put something on the wall or they have a physical parking lot on the wall where they put the things that during a meeting, uh, we realize there's a tangent that we feel is not relevant. We can put it in a parking lot and get back to it later. But thinking about how the physical environment reinforces either the behavior change that you want, or in some cases reinforces the behaviors you don't want. Brilliant response. That was you taking the same thinking, uh, in a way to respond to the question. <laughs> that was fantastic. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah. Thank you for saying I'm fantastic. <laughs> it's very, I, I can't confirm or deny that, but I will accept your compliment. Designing meetings, that's one thing. Then, you know, you're, you're in control of, or theoretically in control of the situation, have an opportunity to consider what you're going to have the meeting for, the outcome you're going to lead to, and the roles within the meeting. But, you know, my experience most of the meetings I, I'm involved in every week, I'm called to. You know, I get, I get, they kind of come into my inbox and I'm clicking yes or no to all of them. What could I do, um, I suppose, as a participant, what can I do to, to improve the design of meetings? The answer that doesn't make any feel, anyone feel better is you can be a citizen. Uh, I was talking on a, a, a podcast uh, that Jeff Veen runs out of London. And Jeff was telling me about his career. And over that career more often than not, he found himself in meetings where he was, politically speaking, on the low end of things. So um, he went from being a, a founder of a, a team and, and leading a team to being acquired and being in a company like Adobe, where he was responsible for validating the, the, the success of his team to a board. And then uh, beyond that, in, in the venture capital space, meeting with multiple boards. And as he did that, you know, he was in meetings that, that he was uh, not, he was called to, essentially. He was in service of, of uh, other leaders. And the thing I want people to take from that, the thing that I took from that, is that you may think 
that you will be in meetings at some some point point where you are not in service of other leaders you will not for your uh for your entire life you will always have meetings that you are not in power from a political perspective no matter how powerful you are in the organization given that what jeff did and what i real i've always done and i think what a lot of designers do is anytime he would go into a meeting before he sat down he would go over to the whiteboard and he would grab the barker and he we kind of were i, I don't remember who said it but one of us said oh it was like your security blanket <laughs> That, that that having the whiteboard marker becomes like uh, a, a source of confidence and power for you. And the thing that I say to people who feel like they're powerless in meetings is if you get that whiteboard marker and you feel tension, you feel conflict, you feel angry that the meeting isn't either going the way you think it should or going anywhere, if you use the whiteboard as a way to, to capture and reflect what people are saying you could sketch you could just write out key concepts whatever you do that act will create a different meeting in and of itself it might not create the meeting you want but it's going to change your experience of the meeting because you'll begin processing differently but you're creating a mechanism for everyone to begin processing in a different way because you're creating a visualization of you're recording a, a, a bit of the meeting in a visualization, yeah. which then becomes a shared memory, which then puts you all possibly closer together on a, what you're talking about and what you're trying to achieve. Or it reveals that you're not there. Yeah. It reveals like, oh, the problem is that I'm worried about the shipping date and you're worried about something entirely different. And mm. that's good too. But that's, that's not going to happen with us talking to each other alone. Thank you so much for getting up early for us this morning, Kevin. Oh, yeah, it's my pleasure. It's been great talking to you. Thanks very much. So my biggest takeaway and biggest insight from this is that we are spending so much time in meetings and we haven't spent any time thinking about how we can make them better. I, That's I, just, I just think it's absolutely mind-blowing that uh, as designers we've done such a rubbish job of of designing or redesigning meetings up to this point. Yeah, so everybody out there, just <laughs> make sure you get this right from mm. now on. So um, you can visit uxpodcast.com to find show notes for this episode and all our episodes. Um, we love to hear from you by any means that you can find us. Um, if um, Twitter isn't your thing, which is one of the most common places to get in touch with us, then you can email us with um, uh, hey at uxpodcast.com and that's either with a J or a Y, depending on which side of the Atlantic you live on. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. Knock. Who's there? Alex. Alex who? Alex, the questions around here.
Oh, you're such a dominatrix. <laughs> I did. On the radio, yeah. They'll bleep me out. 